0: folks um hopefully rfm will be here in a moment he was just having some technical issues and uh we could hear him but he couldn't hear us and so he was just going to restart his computer um we will get to the end of the show and we'll announce the uh winning t-shirt design um also uh, just an fyi uh, that thing you see down in the bottom right-hand corner of the YouTube video, shirtscom backslash collections, backslash Mormon discussions. Uh, all of the uh, Umbrellas merchandise is available at that site. You're welcome to purchase things. The winner, um, the winning t-shirt, uh, which we'll announce at the end of the show, it will not be in the store until after uh, the either the episode is over or at least before the start of next week's episode. So if you're looking to purchase that, we'll mention it again next week for the hundredth episode. And uh, maybe just, uh, I was going to talk to RFM. Uh, if he was in here, we're going to talk to him about uh, that. my wife and I got some new bowling balls and uh, we've, we've loved bowling for years, but we uh, just recently bought our own bowling balls to use in the last couple of days. We've gone out a few times and played and we're just uh, having a ton of fun. I was going to see if he had any stories to tell about bowling, but without that, we should probably jump right into the show, and so if he jumps on here later, we'll we'll maybe stop somewhere in the show and, and talk about that for a moment. But um, let me get this off the screen. What you're seeing on the screen is a trial depicted by the LDS Church, Joseph Smith on the right. I don't know which one of the trials this is, but tonight we were going to talk about the 1826 uh, Glass Looking uh, Glass looker trial. And uh, I wanted to start off kind of setting the stage for this conversation and uh, what we end up with here. In the spring of 1825, uh, Joseph Smith is uh, at a Simpson Stoll's house uh, in Palmyra, New York, when Simpson's father, Josiah Stoll, visits him and Joseph Smith uses his seer ability, presumably the stone in the hat, and proceeds to amaze those in attendance with a couple of what I'll call remote viewing performances. And if folks, if you look up what remote viewing is, you can go to Wikipedia. In the outline that we will stick in the show notes, um, we'll end up. RFM, how are you? Hello.
1: Am I okay? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. You sound very soft and gentle.
0: Well, let me uh, me turn it up just a touch. How's that? Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much. How do I sound? Good, good. Excellent. You sound I crystal things clear. Things have been
1: happening here in the underground bunker, but um, yeah. maybe a gremlin somewhere in the works, but I won't bother we work... with those details right now. I'm just glad as heck to finally made it.
0: Yeah, we should work it out. If you need to, you could do something like, I don't know, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three, but yeah, it does, sound, do it does that, sound great. That would be like off-brand. <laughs> All right. So uh, we had gotten started here, but we were right at the very beginning. I had just mentioned that Uh, Joseph Smith is hanging out at a Simpson Smith in Palmyra, New York, and that Simpsons father, Josiah Stoll, uh, visits his son and Joseph Smith is there and he uses his seer ability, presumably the stone in the hat, and proceeds to amaze those in attendance with a couple of what I called remote viewing performances. And I was Mm, just asking mm -hmm. the audience if they knew what remote viewing was that they could go check it out on Wikipedia. But there was a time at least in the past and maybe even present where even the U S government was testing out the psychic ability of individuals. And one of those tests was a thing called remote viewing where a person would concentrate super hard and would be able to see reality, but, but reality that is not within their vision. So across the country, for instance, looking at a weapons depot for another country's military. um, And they actually tested this and the data seems to, indicate that it's not real but then i also know there are pieces of data and research that indicates that there might be the tiniest bit of (laughs) improvement right like within the statistical region of error but still on the positive success side more than what would be random yeah right
1: i'd be really interested in reviewing that data yeah
0: i don't know how much of it's peer-reviewed but i just want to note it and uh and we'll go from there so as a long-time um, listener
1: to Art Bell, I do know what remote viewing is, and it's not yeah. exclusively reserved to this planet among its most ardent proponents.
0: Mm. Yeah. By the way, I know you're though, in the middle right? of this.
1: Everybody wants to know about the shirt. I tried to wear a special shirt. I've got a jacket on because it's freezing in here. But uh, I tried to wear a shirt today that anybody who guessed before the show started as to what I would be wearing and what character I'd have on, that everybody could be correct. So basically. What I've got is everybody in the Marvel Universe on this shirt. And yes, I am wearing pants. Thank you, Moksha.
0: I remember the one time I had a dress shirt on and stood up and I had my shorts or whatever. But we made a joke, I think, the next week. Or at least you did. <laughs> yeah. The All right. So
1: shortly thereafter. Uh,
0: these remote viewing performances included at least one instance of Joseph Smith describing Josiah Stoll's house. And we'll we'll get to that in this trial. Uh, and his outhouses correctly, while all of them are at Palmyra and Stoll's pro- uh, property. They say the outhouse
1: there's... had a little moon carved into the door. Oh yeah, don't they that's all? A tough one.
0: That's... <laughs> and uh, Stoll's property is actually in Bainbridge, New York, significantly far away from Palmyra. Here you see the map on the screen. I wanted folks to kind of get a sense of just how far away it is. It's a two-hour and thirty-minute drive, although got a little bit of a bend there in the in the route. Look at but all not that. have so been
1: interesting with all the blue it looks like a land of many waters
0: it it very much is those finger lakes huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, you know one of the things i was thinking in my head as i was preparing this uh, conversation was the idea that maybe joseph smith would have had access to josiah's house it wouldn't have been too far away and maybe we could make the argument that he walked there and kind of saw it so that he could tell uh, Simpson and Josiah what the property looked like. And I think that that probably is not a rational argument. So I wanted to put the map up so folks could kind of see it's probably a little too far to even propose that that's what's going on, Um, but not significantly far away again, two and a half hour drive, but you know, quite a bit of a carriage ride, right? Um, Josiah Stoll, so amazed with the prophet's ability hires him to both work the farm and to lead treasure digs near Stoll's property in New York. Uh, several members of Stoll's family, Joseph Smith Jr., for instance, Joseph Smith Sr., Isaac Hale, Emma Hale Smith's father, and other members of the Hale family, uh, as well as I think I said the Stoll's and a few others, they make a mining agreement. So I actually found this. Thank goodness for the Joseph Smith papers. They are fantastic. This is a newspaper article. I, I was going to look up where what, what year this was, but this is significantly after the mining agreements actually made. Some person was able to find it, and um, they ended up printing it in a newspaper years later. And this is the article on uh, from the Joseph Smith Papers Project so that folks could see the, the mining agreement. And I'm not going to go through it. We're not going to read it, but folks are welcome to to do that afterward. You can pause it on that section read the thing. But notice the names at the end, Isaac Hale, David Hale, P. Newton, and then you've got a Chas Newton, Joseph Smith Sr., Isaiah Stoll. Calvin stole Joseph Smith Jr., and a William Willie. And uh, those are the names that sign off in this mining agreement. Folks may want to argue that, hey, maybe this isn't legitimate. Well, the Joseph Smith Papers Project also shares their two cents on the provenance. They said while the document has poor provenance, the text appears to be authentic. The agreement is generally consistent with Joseph Smith's personal history and with several other contemporaneous sources. And you and I were talking earlier today, there's a there's a section in here, I don't know if I'll be able to find it quickly, but there's a section in here where it talks about how Joseph Smith had already been uh, working on these treasure digs at the Stoll's property for months now. Uh, it appears to be probably sometime in the early part of 1825. And then this mining agreement ends up happening, I think the date on it is November 1st, 1825. And uh, you know we had got this statement in in the church RFM. You and I probably remember this really well. But numerous times, I remember hearing the quote that Joseph Smith wasn't really into treasure digging. The Stoles, Josiah Stoll was the one who pressured him. He goes and does it, and it's not very profitable. I think he says he makes seventeen bucks a month, yes. and quickly tells Stoll that it's not working out, and convinces him to quit. Is that the story you remember from church history?
1: Well, yeah, they didn't really talk about it, in, well, at least in church, in my church meetings. But um, I did notice a couple things. First off, this was uh, signed and ascribed to in, it looks like Yellowstone Valley at the top of the article on April 12th, 1880. Is that 1880 that I'm seeing there?
0: It looks like a clear April 12th, 1880, yes.
1: Okay, so that's the Providence and B-Wade, mm. they talk a little bit about it. But like um, the Joseph Smith Papers Project says, it looks like it's probably legit, one of the things I find interesting about that is that Isaac Hale is a signatory to this because yeah. I'd always had the impression that he was kind of aloof and apart from this. He was very, very uh, pragmatic. Yeah. And perhaps he was in other areas of his life, but he signed on to this, which a lot of people did at the time. They didn't see that as a conflict.
0: Yeah. And, and him and uh, the Stoles, and then the third party, which I get, I don't have it in front of me, but the, not the Smiths. They decide they're going to divide this up into thirds. And then Joseph Smith Jr. and Joseph Smith uh, Sr. get two elevenths of everybody's third share. So they'll walk away with two elevenths if they find the treasure. And it's gold ingots and silver bars and gold coins. All of that's mentioned in this document. And it already points to the fact that Joseph Smith seems to know where these things are. And so this is the agreement so that when they find stuff, they will have a legal document to say how they're going to split it up so nobody can cheat the system. But it is interesting that the Smiths only want two elevenths, while uh, the rest of the parties who don't have the actual magic ability to locate the treasure—you would think that's the most important part of the formula—and um, they're getting a larger portion. And I was talking to you off, you know, off the show that it kind of makes me wonder if you know Joseph's playing this smart on the front end. Like he has to show some interest in the winnings so that they believe he th- he believes it, but he really bases his money off the actual labor. Uh, getting paid to actually, you know, locate the treasure, the time spent doing that, the time while he's out there while other people are digging, and that seems like a really smart way to do it if you're not really expecting to find a treasure,
1: yes. And I always want to throw it in there because it's also possible Joseph Smith believed he did have this power. Mm-hmm. I think the president of the church believes that he has powers that he doesn't possess, just as an example, yeah. So, if Joseph Smith is doing that, yeah, and it also may. The, the greater portions may involve who has ownership to the property upon which this is expected to be found. I'm not sure, but I think you've got the details of it down right. By the way, I did want to mention when you meant when you said about what church history says about it. Yeah. In the correlated sense, the only thing that I can find in church history about it from the church website. By the way, this is from the Gospel Topics essay about Joseph Smith Translation, which finally mentions the seer stone. This is all we get about the treasure digging. I have it in front of me right now. Okay. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, we have to normalize it, like others in his day, used the seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture, period. Mm. That's all it gets in this essay.
0: Mm. Not much there. I know there is a, an enzyme article. Let me see if I can throw it up. Um, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but just to share where we got... Here we are. So 18, Joseph Smith's 1826 trial, and this looks like it is... Oh, is that the same one you were reading from?
1: No, I was, I was reading the that... Gospel Topics essay about the translation of the Book of Mormon, where they finally copped to the oh, use of the seer gotcha.
0: stone. Gotcha, gotcha. And so this one gives a little bit of information, too. But it's really interesting, and, and I'm, we won't spend a lot of time on this either, but if folks want to go back and read this article after the show, I want you just to notice... What parts of the trial they include and in, and in seem to be wanting to be forthright about. And then you'll notice other parts of this trial that they clearly leave out of the record. And I think for the reasons, you know, for their good reasons for why they do it, to kind of not have people have their faith challenged in any way. And so I thought that was interesting as well. Um, all right. Next, let's put this back up. Um. So, we've got the mining agreement. Joseph Smith is living on Stoll's property for about a half a year, working the farm and doing these treasure digs, but they are finding absolutely nothing. And these digs are failing at every turn. Members of Stoll's family, along with others in the community, perceive that Stoll is being taken advantage of. And on March 20th, 1826, Joseph Smith is brought before the court on charges of being a disorderly person and an imposter. And I put that in quotes because that's. This account of the trial proceeding say we don't have the original docket, although we'll get into provenance for the trial when we start to read from it and uh, explore some of the details in it. Um, and we've got certainly what happened within church history to kind of show that to to either be true or not true, and we'll talk about all of that. But to note, um, members of Stoll's family, uh, along with others' in the community, we already talked about, it, they charged with disorderly person and impostor. The trial is the first sorry the trial first printed in fraser magazine which is here and you find online they have the whole year's worth but uh you can each month has its own edition and so this is the february on the right hand side the february 1873 edition volume seven gives the number there um that's the first place it shows up. So 1873 in February. And then the second place it shows up is the Utah Christian advocate and the Christian advocate. Both of them have a little bit different. uh, The the trial proceeding is verbatim, but then just before the proceeding or just after both articles have a little bit of commentary and they both share a little bit of the, um, the provenance for Uh, for this. And so I wanted to show that too. So let's see here. Slide six.
1: Yes. I want to prepare the audience to be underwhelmed by the provenance for this transcript.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not something super exciting. So in the oldest of the two, it says during my stay in Salt Lake City, sorry, Salt Lake permission was uh, courteously accorded me to copy out a set of such judicial proceedings, not hitherto published. I cannot doubt their genuineness. The original papers were lent me by a lady of well-known position in whose family they had been preserved since the date of the transactions. I produce them here, partly to fulfill the duty of assisting to preserve a piece of information about the profit, and partly because while the charges are less vehement than some,
1: or even vehement. I might have
0: chosen. What's that?
1: Or even vehement.
0: Vehement, yeah, there we go. Thank you. Vehemently, so uh, less vehement than some, I might have chosen. The proceedings are happily lightened by a touch of the ludicrous. And then, in the uh, Utah uh, see Christian Advocate, uh, it says the document we print below is interesting to those who desire historic light on the origin of Mormonism. We we received the manuscript from Bishop Tuttle, in the following from the good bishop's pen explains how he came into possession of the manuscript. The MS or manuscript was given me by Miss Emily Pearsall, who some years since was a woman helper in our mission and lived in my family and died here. Her father or uncle was a justice of the peace in Bainbridge, uh, Chenego County, New York in Joseph Smith's time. And before him, Smith was tried. Miss Pearsall Tore the leaves out of the record and found tore the leaves out of the record found in her father's house, and brought them to me, uh, exact copy. Trial and conviction of Joseph Smith, author of the Book of Mormon, March twentieth, eighteen twenty six, Bainbridge, New York. What do you make of these two statements? Anything? Uh, anything stick out to you there?
1: Well, no, unless this uh, otherwise unidentified woman in Salt Lake City in the first article, eighteen seventy three suddenly becomes Miss Emily Pearsall. It could be, but it sounds like the second publication of it is basing it upon a different provenance than simply republishing what was in the 1873 article.
0: Yeah, the Frasers look like it might be this uh, Bishop Tuttle, and then the one on the right is is now another source who says they got it from Bishop Tuttle, who got it from Miss Emily Pearsall. I also know they're so sure that this is accurate but just to note that they don't know whether Pearsall was a, uh, uh, let's see, whether her, whether it was her father or her uncle who was the justice of the peace in Bainbridge. So even them with some level of certainty seem not to really know what Pearsall's relationship is to the, to the judge or justice. And so we ought to at least acknowledge that as we kind of move forward. Uh, right. So and that, the other uh,
1: thing is about it first showing up in 1873 is going to cause some concern about its accuracy in the first place. I know you'll get to that.
0: Yeah, totally. By the all way, right. Bill, I apologize.
1: Yes. I'm gonna be going in and out of the screen as far as my face goes. I'm a bit under the weather. And yeah. if you knew what I was doing when I'm not on the screen,
0: you would appreciate it. That's all I'm saying. Okay, no, no sweat. Okay. You feel free to turn whatever off when you need to. Thanks. Yep. All right. So we talked about the provenance of the trial proceedings. Um, I also want to share something else. There is a WD purple. Who makes this connection that he's insinuating, and this is a little late as well. This is, you know, several years. I think it's maybe eighteen thirty-eight or something that this gentleman's writing this down. But he relates that uh, Josiah Stoll. um, He's suggesting that Josiah Stoll is looking for uh, uh, Captain Kidd's um, treasures, and we always have this running story in Mormonism that Joseph Smith would have been deeply aware of Captain Kidd. And then the church, through its apologists, tend to take a different stance, which is generally that we don't know that. We don't really have any proven connection. Um, we, we can't really draw the conclusion that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with the Comoros Islands and with, uh, with Moroni and all that comes with the Captain Kidd story. But before we get into the actual trial, I thought I would note that there are actually at least four sources that point to a connection between Joseph Smith and Captain Kidd. And if in fact Josiah Stoll was very well of the, uh, well aware of the story, certainly the conversation would have centered around how those treasures got buried in the in the first place as well. Correct? Okay, so here's the four sources. According to J. H. Kennedy, Joseph quote made confession unquote that the autobiography of Captain Kidd quote made a deep impression upon him unquote. Kennedy does not say in what context Smith made this confession. Palmyra native Philatus B. Spear recalled in an 1873 uh, interview that that as a boy, Joseph, quote, had for a library copy of the Arabian Nights, stories of Captain Kidd, and a few novels, unquote. Pomeroy Tucker also mentions Joseph's youthful fascination with Captain Kidd, Stephen Burroughs, the counterfeiter, and others noting that such stories presented the highest charms for his expanding mental perceptions. And uh, Emily Dickinson, uh, sorry, not Emily Dickinson, the author, Ellen E. Dickinson, uh, similarly wrote, uh, it is said that Joseph at an early age, and again, RFM, you pointed this out before, it is said. So it just suggests that it's a second hand. She's not really a firsthand witness to Joseph saying that. It is said that Joseph at an early age could read, but not write. Uh, which would be very convenient for uh, a dictator, wouldn't it?
1: Uh, what do you, oh, I'm sorry, for if, one who dictates manuscripts out of a hat?
0: If if one is good at reading, but not writing, dictate them dictating and someone else being the scribe is really convenient.
1: Yes, for a second there, I thought we were going down the road of Pol Pot or Mussolini.
0: No, okay. So it is said that Joseph at an early age could read, but not write. And when quite young, committed these lines to memory from the story of Captain Kidd, the notorious pirate, which seemed to give him great pleasure. My name was Robert Kidd as I sailed, as I sailed. And most wickedly I did as I sailed, as I sailed. Okay. Uh, what do you make of, what do you make of this connection between Josiah Stoll and Captain Kidd? And then these four sources as a, as a trial attorney, if four witnesses got up and said three of them firsthand and one second hand, that they had heard Joseph Smith had a connection to knowing the the Captain Kidd stories. And his close associate seems to have some ambiguity about knowing the story of Captain Kidd. What would you think, a, would, what would a courtroom kind of think about this? Or would you feel this is pretty strong as a trial attorney that there is, that it is fair to say that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with the Captain Kidd narrative?
1: I think it seems likely. Once again, of course, Ellen is talking about it is said that, where she's signaling that she's repeating something that someone has told her We have no idea how many links there might be to what she's saying but it's corroborated by these other three now Mm. they are late and so there's always the issue of whether they are repeating what they actually know personally or whether they are deriving their information from something that somebody else had said before them right that's the way that one witness can become four depending upon the provenance but yeah it seems like uh joseph smith probably knew something about Captain Kidd, he's a romantic figure, certainly involved in the mythology and the lore of treasure diggers, it makes absolute sense that he would be.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And so with that, we'll start to kind of move into the trial itself. Um, this is going to be a little small for folks. And um, Maven, if you'll just notice when, we, when I get towards the bottom of RFM, if you don't mind reading a little bit, maybe you don't want to because you don't feel as good. Oh, I'm always um, up
1: for reading, baby.
0: Well, I want to make sure. So if you're not, just say so and I'll take over or whatever. But, Wherever um, there's
1: cops beating up a guy, I'll be there.
0: <laughs> what a good lawyer you are. <laughs> um, that doesn't hardly happen though, right? Cops beating up people. Well, it's actually
1: from Grapes of Wrath, but <laughs> Calm Okay. Joke.
0: All right. So there are uh, four columns here. Maven, if you notice when we get to the bottom, just kind of if, if the comments will stay off, because I think it'll be hard for me to pick that up. But um, do you want to start, RFM? And we'll start with, because we already read the provenance. If you'll start with people of state of New York versus Joseph Smith.
1: Oh, down there. Yeah. People of state of New York versus Joseph Smith. Oh my gosh. Is there any way that that can be increased in size? And if
0: not, the thing I can suggest is if you make your monitor full screen, there's in the if bottom, make of, my StreamYard,
1: monitor screen, in the bottom of streamyard. full screen. I think it was because I just put it down to half now.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Cause you can go full screen in streamyard and it'll put it on cover your whole monitor with our, our, video. If not, it's big enough that I could read it. I think it's going to be hard to make it bigger because it is a slide.
1: Yeah, you better be careful with me. I might accidentally hit the end broadcast button. <laughs> Don't you never do know that. what's going to happen. It's very strange things going on here now. So it looks like it says, okay, warrant. Is that the first word? Warrant you issued so upon far. written complaint upon oath of Peter G. Bridgman, who yeah. informed I feel like him in first grade all over (laughs) again. If you want to, like Joseph Smith, who informed that one Joseph Smith of Bainbridge was a disorderly person, and is that two ands
0: and in imposter
1: and and an imposter and yeah, that will happen sometimes. There's a technical name for it. I bet uh, Dan Vogel can tell us what it is. Where you accidentally repeat the last word of a sentence at the beginning of the next sentence and an imposter um, prisoner, prisoner uh, brought before. Do you want me to to do this? Hang on a second here.
0: Yeah. Would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Let me do this. All right. So prisoner brought before the court 20th of March, prisoner examined. uh, And I think maybe that says sirs that he came from town of Palmyra and that he had been at the house of Josiah Stoles. In Bainbridge most of the time, since had small part of time been employed looking for mines, but the major part had been employed by said stole on his farm and going to school. I wanna I wanna stop there for just uh just a moment. Um let me let me push that. Yeah. I
1: just found the enlarge button. It's a button I've been looking for my whole life.
0: Let's see here. Yeah, yeah. So you you did that. Perfect. Um There's this idea that Joseph Smith is not only looking for mines, but most of the time, at least part-time, working on the farm. And then lastly, it says going to school. And I'm just curious, RFM, um, what's this idea of a 20, 21-year-old going to school? Do you think he's going to university? Do we have any record of him going to a trade school in Bainbridge? But he seems to indicate that he's spending a significant amount of time going to school.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not aware of it. I bet Dan Vogel is. I know Hiram went to uh, a school in Dartmouth, but I don't know about Joseph.
0: Yeah, uh, he was mentioning volume four of the early Mormon documents. I, I read a several pieces of that in preparation for tonight. But yeah, Vogel, Dan, if you're out there, and I think I did see you comment, if um, if you'll just, yeah, if you'll know, he you said he went to school with Stoll's son. I don't know if this would have been like uh, some form of high school or would this have been college. Um deeply oh, curious what this super would Super enlarged
1: button. This is great. Okay.
0: Good, good. Um, let me finish reading that uh, section. And then I guess uh, if you want to read the second column, we can do it that way.
1: I'm set to go now.
0: Okay. Let me get through this first column. Um, But the major part had been employed by said stole on his farm in going to school that he had certain stone, which he had occasionally looked at to determine where hidden treasures in the bowels of the earth were that he professed to tell in this manner where gold mines were a distance underground and had looked for Mr. Stoll several times and informed him where he could find those treasures. And Mister Stoll had been engaged in digging for them, um, and I can stop there if you want. It, it he's been at the farm for five months. You know we've got we've got him there for a decent amount of time. It says he's looking for mines, but then most of the time working part time at the farm and going to school. Um. And then you've got this the going to school, which which Vogel says he's going to school with one of the kids, but. Again, what age that person is. It looks like he says night school started around this time to educate the working poor. So that's helpful too. Thanks, Joan. Uh, he mentions his seer stone ability. He, and, and then he goes into detail about it. And I'll let you take over here that second column if you see that well. Okay, that
1: at Palmyra, he had pretended to tell. By the way, I think the pretended is a, an editorial comment on the part yeah. of the person making this transcript. Uh, obviously, yeah. Joseph Smith isn't saying, I pretended to do this at the trial but this is what their view of it is that at palmyra he had pretended to tell by looking at this stone where coined money was buried in pennsylvania and while at palmyra he had frequently ascertained in that way where lost property was of various kinds that he was occasionally that he has occasionally been in the habit of looking through this stone to find lost property for three years but of late by the way, three years, it's 1825. So that's going back to 22, right?
0: Yeah. And as you and I both know, it goes back further than that, because it's recorded that when he's 13 years old, one year before the first vision, he allegedly uses Sally Chase's green seer stone to then predict that he's got a seer stone ready for him 150 miles away under like under a tree and he goes to dig that and he finds the white translucent seer stone that becomes his very first seer stone. That's his.
1: Okay. And Dan Vogel has thrown in the comment that, uh, pretended is the language of the statute.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So three years, but of late had pretty much given it up on account of injuring his health, especially his eyes made them sore. Unlike the muscles of the guys who are digging all night, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it can happen. A kind of injuring his health, especially his eyes, made them sore. that he did not solicit business of this kind and had always rather declined having anything to do with this business.
0: And and I want to stop there for just a moment. I think it's Dan that wrote the article on the multiple treasure digs. I think it's 17 digging sites in uh, the Palmyra area. And it's a dialogue, a PDF article. And if you do a Google search, you can find that. But Joseph seems to always be downplaying the amount of treasure digging he's doing and that he's never really the one who's pushing to do it. And yet somehow he seems to find himself doing it over and over again, year after year after year. Um, Any thoughts from you there before I talk about the sore eyes?
1: Oh, just that he's the reluctant treasure digger. Yeah. Or treasure seer is really what he is. He's not doing the digging. He's doing the seeing.
0: No. No. And that's the other thing too, that there's almost this point in church where, you kind of think him and some other guys are digging for treasures and you really don't, until you start diving into the non-correlated material, you you really don't get this solid feel because it's only a modern way that the church tells stuff. Um, that, that, that Joseph's doing the digging with other people and you don't really get a lot of this. Joseph is a seer and he sees objects. It's really more of a modern correlated material that contains those parts of the story. Um, any thoughts there?
1: Oh, just that when, because this is one of Joseph Smith's titles, I mean, this is his main title in the 1820s, I think, among those who think he has a gift of being a seer. And of course, that will become uh, incorporated into his official title once the church is established of being a prophet seer and revelator.
0: When, when I heard this notation about it making his eyes sore, so what he's saying is that I don't really like doing this work anymore. When I put my hat my stone in a hat, and I look into it. My eyes get tired, my eyes get sore, and so it's really not something I want to do. It's been injurious to my health, and I just want to know. It, it's I'm not saying it's an exact contradiction, but you can juxtapose these two things. It is. It is in my mind really close to a con- contradiction. But I remember there was a quote in church history from William Smith, where if you remember when Joseph when uh, when Martin Harris goes to New York and he visits Charles Anton. Charles Anton, um, you know, has this experience with Martin Harris, Martin Harris goes back and then the church and Joseph Smith record a certain version of how that event transpired. And Anton on his own publishes his version of the, what happened in two different newspapers of the day. And he mentions that the Urim and Thummim, uh, Martin Harris, he mentions that Martin Harris says the Urim and Thummim is too big for Joseph to use it comfortably um, and so he notes that, and then you'll notice in this interview, William Smith says the same, same thing, but then he adds something to it. So he says in an 18, eight, uh, 1891 interview with the prophet's brother, William Smith provides a description of the Urim and Thummim and its relationship to the breastplate at the time that William gave his description. The term Urim and Thummim had been used for many years to describe the Nephite interpreters. William said that a silver bow ran over one stone under the other around over that one and under the first in the shape of a horizontal figure eight, much like a pair of spectacles. And we've all seen the picture of the intertwined metal with the two glass uh, stones or or pieces of glass of some sort in there that we allege in, as believing Mormons is the Urim and Thummim, although there's a lot of dispute about whether Joseph used a stone and a hat the whole time because even as early as these 1826 trials, he is indicating that his seer ability happens through a stone and a hat and while the Urim and Thummim seems to get a mention, it's not really talked about in the literal reality sense of being used in real time. Um, William also said the spectacles were much too large for Joseph, so he's repeating the same thing that Charles Anton said Martin Harris told him, and that Joseph could only see through one at a time using sometimes one and sometimes the other, the two lenses on the, on the opposite sides of that intertwined figure eight. By putting his head in a hat or some dark object, It was not necessary to close one eye while looking through the stone with the other. In that way, sometimes when his eyes grew tired, he relieved them of the strain. And I just want to note in an 1826 account, he is saying that when he puts the stone in the hat, his eyes get tired and he really doesn't want to do his seeing ability in that formula, in that process. And then we're going to say four years later, essentially. That Joseph Smith is telling William Smith, and this is the prophet's brother, this should be to some degree trusted, although this is also a late uh, reminiscence, but that Joseph having his uh, head in the hat um, isn't how he his eyes get tired, but rather it's how he relieves them because the way they get tired is by looking through the Urim and Thummim um, the the spectacles, the Nephite spectacles. And so there's that. Uh, so I was going to ask you, Arfim, take your time, but I was going to ask you if you had any thoughts on this. It does seem as though Joseph is wanting to say in one instance, his eyes grow tired from one mode of operation. And then a few years later, when he's moved from one process to the stone in the hat, he now says that this is what relieves him of his eyes being tired. Any thoughts from you on these two? points being put up against each other
1: oh i think there's a really good uh thing that you remembered to juxtapose those two because they do seem to be in opposition to each other the main thing i'm thrilled about is that you found these quotes in an article that was published in the interpreter a journal of latter-day saint faith and scholarship which i think has languished in obscurity for far too long
0: (laughs) this is probably about as much publicity as it's going to get. <laughs> it is
1: hard for me to say some things with a straight face, believe it or not.
0: Uh, we love you, Dan Peterson. All right. Yeah. So, you owe me yes, five the,
1: bucks, Dan, by the way.
0: The Spectacles, the Stone in the Hat, the book, a 21st century believer's view of the Book of Mormon translation. Great article, by the way. I remember reading this when it first came out, and it, uh, it helped shape how I understood this issue. And I felt like it was much more transparent. And, uh, and forthright than I'd ever seen the church be about this issue. And so hat, kudos to them, hats off to them. All right, now back to the proceedings itself. Do you want to continue reading um, where we leave off after that first paragraph in the second column?
1: I would so love to. Josiah Stoll? Yep. Josiah Stoll, sworn. So now we're into the the hearing, the trial, whatever it is, the judicial proceeding in Bainbridge, right? Mm-hmm. Bainbridge, yeah. Yep. Josiah Stoll, sworn says that prisoner, and every time it says prisoner, it's Joseph Smith, who's apparently in some kind of restraints. Yeah. Prisoner had been at his house something like five months, had been employed by him to work on farm part of the time, that he pretended to have skill. And once again, this pretendency, it's part of the statute, but that's what you have to, to find in order to find somebody guilty, is that they're pretending. That's why objective being <laughs> inserted here.
0: However, It's all make-believe. It's all yeah, myth anyway.
1: That he pretended to have skill. <laughs> Of telling where hidden treasures in the earth were by means of looking through a certain stone. That prisoner had looked for him sometimes once, sometimes once to tell him about money buried on Bend Mountain, that's B E N D, in Pennsylvania, once for gold on Monument Hill, and once for Salt Spring. And that he positively knew that the prisoner could tell and possess the art of seeing those valuable treasures through the medium of said stone. That he found the digging part at Bend and Monument Hill, as prisoner represented it. That prisoner had looked through said stone for Deacon. Little help here?
0: Uh, I'm going to go Adleton.
1: Yeah. It looks like A-T-T-L-T-O-N as it's published here. I'm guessing Mm -hmm. maybe at least one letter is missing. For a mine. So he he looked through said stone for a guy named Deacon Adleton for a mine, did not exactly find it, (laughs) but got a piece of ore, which resembled gold.
0: I just want to ask you, you, if you found a rock that looked like gold, but wasn't, how promising is that for actually finding gold? How much is that an indicator that you should probably keep digging in the same spot?
1: Well, I don't know, because he's looking through the stone in the hat. He says he's finding gold. Apparently, there's some kind of fool's gold or something that looks like gold, but it isn't. So, I mean, he's got to be seeing something, right? (laughs) Now he just got to hone in a little bit. We are so
0: close. We've almost got it here. (laughs) We have
1: almost got it. So, uh, through the medium set stone that he found the digging part, Ben uh, had looked through. Okay, Deacon Adleton for a mine, did not exactly find it. So, he's looking for a whole mine of gold. (laughs) To not exactly find it, but got a piece of ore, which is spelled O A R in this article, which resembled gold. It looked like. It. it was close. <laughs> yes, that prisoner had told by means of this stone where a Mister Bacon had buried money. That he, and by the way, this is this is Josiah Stoll giving all the reasons to this court of why it is that Joseph Smith is actually a true seer and do, and does have this gift. <laughs> These are his reasons for believing this, because the crazy thing is, I think it's the the nephew or some other relative of Josiah Stoll who brings yeah. this action on his behalf, saying, my, my uncle or whoever, Josiah Stoll is getting swindled out of money by Joseph Smith and his pretended abilities to see through the stone, brings him to court. Josiah Stoll is the first witness saying, what are you talking about? This guy can do it. He's not swindling me. And here's how Gold, I know Jerry. he can do it. And here's my testimony. And that's what we're reading right now in somewhat right. of an abbreviated format. So, prisoner had been in search of it. Um, Mr. Bacon had buried money that he and the prisoner, that's Joseph Smith, every time we read prisoner, that he and Joseph Smith had been in search of it, that Joseph Smith, the prisoner, said that it was on a certain root of a stump. That's R-O-O-T, root of a stump, five feet from the surface of the earth, and with it would be found a tail feather. Because, of course, whenever you're digging and burying gold in the first instance, you always want to throw in a tail feather just for good measure. So he finds a tail feather. Maybe Dan Vogel will have a salient comment to make about that.
0: But by the tail way, feather. they're looking for buried money and a tail feather and they right. find the tail feather. And it reminds found me the of money. a joke. It reminds me of a joke. I, I I once asked people, I said, Hey, did anybody lose 500 bucks wrapped up of the rubber band? And people go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mine. And I go, great. I just found the rubber band, right? The rubber band. Is the, it's the useless thing among the objects. And so there's buried money with a buried feather, but we know Joseph Smith's a prophet, not because we found the money. We didn't, but because we found the feather. (laughs) I know.
1: And those feathers are very hard to plant. I want you to know that as a magician, very difficult in the middle of the night when you're out there digging for treasure in the dark to be digging a hole and to let drop a feather, which you've had in your pocket the whole time and say, Hey, look what I found or better yet. Say, hey! Look what you found!
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if you're gonna bury something to trick somebody into believing that you are a real seer, better to bury the feather half of the of what you're gonna find than the buried money, right?
1: Well, absolutely, because <laughs> you got to get the money there somehow. It's in your possession, and once you find the money, then you're gonna have to be divvying it up with all these other people. <laughs> so um, we got the stump. We've got the feather. Would be found with it. Would be found a tail feather. That said, stole and prisoner thereupon commenced digging, found, Dermal please, huh. a tail feather.
0: So Joseph was digging at the time the feather was found that he predicted would be in the hole with buried money. It was there, but the money wasn't.
1: Yes, and the last part of that was, but the money was gone. And Doug Vincent's comment is eradicating my ability to read the bottom portion of this document. Curse you, Doug. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So apparently, feathers do not have the ability to move through the earth as effectively as the buried treasure does, tail feathers there, money
0: gone. So
1: far, thereupon commenced digging, found a tail feather, but money was gone, that he stopped. No, that he supposed that the money moved down, leaving the horse feather behind. The cheese stands alone. Isn't that
0: convenient? Isn't that convenient?
1: Yes. Well, it's it's pretty frustrating, I would think. (laughs) If I were Josiah Stoll, dang it, I almost had it. Yeah. That the prisoner did not offer his services, that he never deceived him, that's interesting. So Joseph Smith, according to Josiah Stoll, never offered his services. Apparently, this is something that was asked for by Josiah Stoll and company, that the prisoner did not offer his services, that he never deceived him. So in none of this that's been recounted in this lengthy paragraph, does Josiah Stoll feel that Joseph Smith has deceived him in any way? How convincing...
0: How convincing do you think this testimony would be to a jury? He found a feather,
1: damn it. Would you quit overlooking (laughs) the obvious? It's like all you want to find is negative in this, Bill. You've lost the gift of the Holy Ghost, obviously. (sighs)
0: Yeah, that's it. That's the problem. You must have faith. God is a a worker of miracles. He's a a God of mystery. And if we just have faith, it'll all work out.
1: You need to have faith like Josiah stole,
0: (laughs) Which is pretty serious faith.
1: He's been in over backward to give Brother Joseph a break. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that the prisoner, Joseph Smith, the prisoner looked through stone and described Josiah Stowell's house and outhouses mm. while at Palmyra at Simpson Stoles correctly. Okay.
0: Now, hold on a minute. He's living with who?
1: Well, let me see here. It says he was living with Simpson Stoll. That last name sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, it's Josiah's son. So, do you think there's any way in which, if Joseph is at Palmyra staying with Simpson Stole when Josiah comes to visit, what are the chances that Joseph could get any information from Simpson Stole that might give him something to go on to then uh, make an educated guess at what Josiah's property looks like in Bainbridge?
1: I would say it's a good lead that should probably be followed up.
0: <laughs> yeah, too many years have passed, we won't be able to find the witnesses.
1: So while at Palmyra, at Simpson stole's correctly, he describes it, and and Dan Vogel had said that he described the tree as being painted with a, a hand painted on it. Yeah, it might have yeah. been. I don't know. Saruman, the white. Did Simpson
0: know that the tree was painted with a hand on it? Probably it was right?
1: fighting Urukai.
0: <laughs>
1: I suppose so. And all I have to do is talk to somebody. You don't even have to ask for this stuff. Do you know how yeah. often, if you give the cards to somebody else to shuffle, they will flash to you the bottom card? That's making possible a host of miracles without you even having to touch it. (laughs) It's just amazing. Um, (laughs) So, but uh, with, oh, it does say it right here. Okay. As Simpson tells correctly that he had told about a painted tree with a man's hand painted upon it by means of said stone. So that's a pretty uh, significant detail. You don't find painted trees with a man's hand painted on it
0: everywhere. Do you, Bill? No, you don't. That's Get a unique faith. thing. So, yeah, if you locate a painted hand on a tree that someone 200 miles away said was there, then you might be onto to something.
1: Absolutely. So Joseph Smith is very good at finding, I don't know, painted hands and feathers. But when it comes to money and gold, not so much. So he'd been in company with the prisoner digging for gold and had the most implicit faith in the prisoner's skill. Yeah, yeah because absolutely. we found I some
0: things. If you only find that,
1: I would believe Joseph Smith could find gold too. (laughs)
0: Um, It does seem strange that what's always located is the mundane uh, valueless thing. And what's all, what's never uh, procured is the priceless uh, things that are actually worth something significant.
1: Yeah. Some might think that was suggestive.
0: Hmm. It says here, Horace stole sworn. uh, Yeah. Who's Horace? So this is, I believe, one of Josiah's sons. I don't want to swear by that, but I'm sure Vogel Dan will chime in and let us know that what the relationship there is. And we very much appreciate that. Horace Stoll Sworn says he sees prisoner look into that strange stone, pretending to tell where a chest of dollars were, buried in the Windsor, a number of miles distant, marked out size of chest in the leaves on the ground so so maybe joseph is kind of drawing kind of uh, the shape of the chest that's going to be located in that spot if they just dig right there uh arid's stole which i believe is another one of the kids arid stole sworn says that he went to see whether the prisoner could convince him that he possessed the skill that he's professed to have upon which prisoner aka joseph smith laid a book open upon a white cloth and proposed looking through another stone, which was white and transparent, so he must have both of the seer stones with him, uh, held the stone to the candle, turned his back to book, and read the deception, uh, read, the deception appeared so palpable that, uh, that went off disgusted. And what it seems they're saying is that when Joseph attempts to do this, it comes off so hokey to them that the that it the act being a fraud was almost physically perceivable, like, right? It's palpable. It's almost in the physical sense, but maybe not exactly. And so they seem to kind of experience some distrust as that presentation by Joseph was going on. and but he does seem to read from the book that he's not facing. Um, RFM, do you know of anybody out there who has lines of books or plays or Shakespeare plays, for instance, or good literature or f- famous movie lines memorized really well? Do you know no. anybody like that?
1: I didn't even know, <laughs> uh, but uh, like you know, about Captain Kid,
0: yeah, but I'm talking about you. So, oh, for instance, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for instance, we're trying to say here that Joseph Smith turns his back to a book and is able to read it without looking at its pages. And there are already comments, you pointed it out, the earlier one about him remembering lines from Captain Kidd and the example of Radio Free Mormon himself, who um, often uh, is able to pull out on a whim's notice significant lines of poetry, plays, movies, and songs. Um, And you seem to have way more memorized than I would say the average person does. And so you seem to have a skill for it. And I'm just noting, Vogel said that the book they probably read from would have been the Bible. It doesn't seem that crazy for a guy like Joseph Smith, who other statements such as the Captain Kidd one and his familiarity with the Bible, it seems reasonable that he wouldn't have a significant problem remembering some lines from a book, turning his back to it, and then reciting them.
1: Right. It would have been more impressive if he had just put the book out there closed or allowed a spectator to pick up the book and open it random mm. to a given page and then place their finger upon, well, you know, something that would be amazing.
0: Yeah. Notice he does the magician trick, which is he controls how things happen in which order. So then he gets to pick what it is that is opened up to doesn't he?
1: Yes. And unfortunately this abbreviated account leaves me a little bit perplexed as to what it was that uh, he did that made it so obvious to the witness, Ered Stowell. Mm-hmm. that he felt that the deception was so palpable that he went off disgusted.
0: Yeah. And but at don't least get that. that
1: was his, his perception. This is an obvious trick, and it's so obvious that I'm not even going to waste my time with it.
0: Right. Uh, McMaster Sworn says he went with Arid Stoll to be convinced of prisoner's skill and likewise came away disgusted, finding the deception so palpable. Prisoner pretended to him that he could discern objects at a distance. By holding this white stone to the sun or candle, that prisoner rather declined looking into a hat as his dark colored stone as he said that hurt his eyes. So again, holding the stone up to a candle or the sun doesn't hurt. By the way, when you look at a stone with the sun right behind it, I got to imagine that's not good for your eyes either.
1: Well, no, hopefully hold it close enough to your eyeball that yeah. um, the sun is going to be completely occluded. But there's that yeah. idea of there has to be a source of light associated with the stone. And when it's out or light of the hat, excluded. I'm sorry, what?
0: Or light excluded, one or the other, and they seem to contradict each other at times, which one works best? Oh, yes. And I was
1: just going to make the rather obvious uh, observation that uh, if it's out of the hat, which we're reading here there's a candle or the sun or some other source of illumination that serves to actuate the magical properties of the stone. If it's in the hat, then the stone uh, emanates its own light. Yeah. And maybe that's sort of a charging mechanism when you hold it up to the sun and that's what makes it glow in the hat.
0: And then just to note again, the stone in the hat in 1826 hurts his eyes and other processes work better. In 1830, other processes hurt his eyes, and it's using the stone in the hat that is uh, relieving to that uh, end. And so, again, not definitively, but sort of a contradiction. Okay. Any you want to finish this last section? I'll read this last. One. Jonathan Thompson says that prisoner was requested to look Yornins. I don't know what that is. Look Yornins for chest of money did look and pretended to know where it was and that prisoner Thompson and Yonans went in search of it that Smith arrived at spot first was in the night that Smith looked in his hat while... There. The What's that? Oh, While, while there. there. I'm sorry, yeah, the, there's a space there between the and R.E. While there and when very dark and told uh, how the chest was situated... After digging several feet, struck upon something that sounded like a board or a plank. Hooray. Prisoner would you've nailed it, right? This oh. prisoner would prisoner would not look again, pretending that he was alarmed. The last time that he looked on account of the circumstances relating to the trunk being buried, came all fresh to his mind that the last time that he looked, he discovered distinctly the two Indians who buried the trunk a quarrel ensued between them and that one of said indians was killed by the other and thrown into the hole beside beside of the trunk to guard it as he supposed what do you make of some native americans burying this trunk of treasure and one of them killing the other for him to be a guardian spirit
1: Well, I think that's a recounting of what was commonly understood for guardian spirits of treasure, that dead men tell no tales and apparently dead Native Americans, it applies to them as well, that you have uh, a group, in this case, maybe two, burying the treasure and two go into the forest to bury the treasure and one comes out because the other guy, the unlucky guy, gets a short end of the stick, gets killed so that they can then become the guardian of the treasure to keep people like Joseph Smith from finding it and therefore requiring all of this magical um what yeah. do you say procedures rituals, yeah and rituals yeah i'm trying to use um uh just language that isn't uh, biased one way or the other that mm-hmm. they need all these types of rituals in order to get it in spite of the best attempts of the guardian spirit to for them to not get it what i'm struck by is that joseph smith is spending all this time trying to find buried treasure and he's not finding it, and he's not finding it, and he's not finding it. And here they're digging at a place where he says there's a buried treasure. They hit a board or a plank, and he's so shocked that they actually hit something that he refuses to look any further.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And the story about there being two Native Americans and one killing the other to be a guardian spirit of the treasure got me finding another story in Mormon history that has a correlation – And this was about 1830. Fayette Laugham visited the Smith family with a friend, Jacob Ramsdell, and talked with Joseph Smith Sr. about finding the buried record. Laugham's narrative, which was published in 1870, is very similar to the versions related by Chase and Knight, including the details about bringing Alvin and then Emma to the hill in order to placate the guardian spirit. So this is Joseph Smith Sr. relating uh, his uh, narrative about, uh, the book of Mormon's guardian spirit Moroni, and, uh, Laugham is hearing this account and then writing it down essentially. So he says, he, Joseph, then told his father. So he Joseph Smith Jr. then told his father that in his dream, a very large and tall man appeared to him dressed in an ancient suit of clothes and the clothes were bloody. And the man said to him, that there was a valuable Wait, treasure. Wait, it was Laban. There. Did he have a head? Yeah, it could have been Nephi, right? Like there is this one instance in early church history where Nephi's name is in place of Moroni's name is who Joseph Smith visits. Yeah, Nephi with bloody clothes would make sense, but this story will start to come together here. But I mean, no, there's just so no. many
1: interesting elements that we see later on
0: yeah and the man said to him that there was a valuable treasure buried many years since and not far from that place and then he goes on to tell how the the guardian spirit then informs Joseph how he is to come and get custody of the treasure being the Book of Mormon on gold plates it's he, he then said to him that he would have to get a certain cover lid which he described in an old-fashioned suit of clothes so Joseph Smith has to come in an old-fashioned outfit in order to fool the guardian spirit who's who himself uh, is dressed in a suit of ancient clothes, right? I'm one of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Of the same color and a napkin to put the treasure in. Then he goes on to tell him more instructions about how he can obtain it. Then it says Smith was struck down and fell on his back. The personage then told him. So this is like that first visit to the hill. Uh, he he struck down because he probably doesn't follow the instructions perfectly. And um, because of that, the angel now is, is informing him that he'll have to come back the next year which comes at the end of this, but then he says this just before that. He says, um, when this is what Moroni says, when the treasure was deposited there, he warned to take charge of and protect that property Moroni was until the time should arrive for it to be exhibited to the world of mankind. And in order to prevent his making of an improper disclosure, he was murdered or slain on the spot. And the treasure had been under his charge ever since. And then he, sent, he then proceeds to tell Joseph he needs to come back a year later. Here's the new process. And then with the plates. What oh, strikes right. and, me- And I
1: know, I'm sorry, Bill, because I know please. we got a lot of stuff to get to. You're good. It's so interesting as you see the development of these stories going from classic treasure digging stories with guardian spirits to an angel of God showing him where gold plates are buried. But the part that you skipped over, I know you're doing it because of time. Yeah. But he said to him, Joseph, that he had not followed his directions. This is the the murdered- uh, treasure guardian. He had not followed his directions. Why? And in consequence of laying the article down before putting it in the napkin, he could not have the article now. That is the Moroni story right there. The first time he goes to the Hill and he can't yep. have the gold plates because he put them down and he looked away for a second and he was charged never to let them out of your sight. Which, of course, he does immediately after he comes back from the hill and sticks him in the chest or something. But, you know, why cavil at small details?
0: Yeah. And this part about uh, Moroni acknowledging that he was murdered or slain on the spot and the treasure had been under his charge ever since. This strikes me. If you think this through logically, the story in Mormonism that we get is that Moroni is the last Nephite. All the La- There's only him and Lamanites, and the Lamanites are after him. And he before he dies, he buries the plates and uh, and then he comes you know to visit Joseph Smith in, in the 1820s to tell him where they're at. but he's the last Nephite. there aren't any more. he's on his own he's trying to evade the Lamanites. When he buries the treasure, if it happens the way Joseph just said here, it's not logical or rational. The reason is is because it implies that there are two people you can't be murdered unless there's a second person who murders you The second person who murdered you must have known that you were burying the plates at that moment and must have uh, either helped you bury the plates or had watched from a tree nearby or something. He comes out and slays you on the spot. That seems sort of contradictory to the way Mormonism frames the story happened, which is that Moroni is evading the Lamanites. He carries the plates with him, He buries them. And then it seems as though we're given kind of this impression that he dies of natural causes or goes off and something else happens. We never know. But for him to be murdered on the spot where the plates are buried implies that the murderer was there in his presence. And that seems to run sort of counter to the Mormon story about who Moroni is and what he was doing.
1: Yeah. Do murder and calm go together? Calm and murder? Murder?
0: Yeah. (laughs) What movie is that from?
1: I'm going to have to let the people listening guess on that one because it's just too juicy.
0: They can do that. So this story about the murder just seems to be kind of, and as Dan's noting, it could be a conflation of stories, but that's what we're always dealing with from the apologist angle is that no matter what is said, no matter how many people say it, no matter how many people point to the same idea, every time it's a late remembrance and hence we, we can easily just dismiss it and i just want to note that maybe we can dismiss some of them but what's the likelihood because you really need to dismiss all of these things there's hundreds and hundreds of tangents in mormonism where what somebody says about what happened has to be dismissed in order for mormonism to hold up and the apologists essentially want the benefit of the doubt every single time
1: well sure wouldn't you
0: of course <laughs> um, of course <laughs> all right back to this will you read the very last page I'm I, think so where, read this. I think that's I'm where this. I'm going to
1: enlarge it right now, and now we are. Where Thompson, are we? Where
0: Thompson says that he believes.
1: Thompson, boy, this. I'm glad this is a, a short article where I can find this readily. Says that. Okay, was requested. Are we in the last paragraph yet?
0: The very last page, about a third of the way down. Thompson says that he believes in the prisoner's professed skill.
1: Oh, the two Indians, right? Guardspost uh, Thompson. Thompson. Thompson says that he believes in the prisoner's professed skills. Okay, that the board he struck his spade upon was probably the chest. But on account of an enchantment, the trunk kept settling away from under them while digging. Sounds like something in the Book of Mormon. That notwithstanding, they continued constantly removing the dirt. They're digging their hearts out, those poor guys. Yet the trunk kept about the same distance from them.
0: So they keep hitting it, but they can't ever get to it.
1: I don't even think he's saying they keep hitting it. I think he's opposing all of this stuff. And he's taking Joseph Smith's word for it. He's reporting that it's, you know, you're almost there. Oh, it keeps moving. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, it's staying <laughs> the same distance ahead of you. It's your fault. You guys aren't digging fast enough. Faster, faster, you fools, you fools. The trunk kept settling away from under them while digging. That notwithstanding, they continued constantly removing the dirt. Yet the trunk kept about the same distance from them. Prisoner said that it appeared to him that salt might be found in Bainbridge, and that he is certain that prisoner can divine things by means of said stone and hat. That is evidence of the fact prisoner looked into his hat to tell him about some money the witness, that's Thompson, lost 16 years ago, and that he described the man that the witness supposed had taken it, and the disposition of the money. So he doesn't find it, but he comes up with a story about who stole it and what he did with it.
0: Joseph describes who the man believed had stole the money well enough that the man felt like Joseph had real magic ability.
1: Right. And this is just the guy that Thompson suspected anyway. And therefore, and therefore the court find the defendant guilty. Cost warrant. Oh, this is where they give the costs at the end. And therefore yep. the court find the defendant. I think that's found or finds the defendant guilty. Cost of warrant, 19 cents. Complain upon o 25.8. Seven witnesses, 87 and a half. These are all cents. This is back when pennies used to mean something. Recognizance, 25. Minimus 19, recognizance or witness, 75. Subpoena, 18 for a total of $268. Am I reading that correctly?
0: 268 pennies.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, 268 pennies. It does have a dollar sign at the beginning, but I think it is pennies.
0: Yeah, 268 pennies. Um So this thing turns up in 1873, and then it's repeated a few years later, 18, uh, what do you say, 80 or 86? And how does the church respond to this thing? What what are the church and those inside the church, what are they saying about this? Well, this is what's really interesting, because this is brought up by
1: uh, critics of the church. I mean, Joseph Smith is engaged in money digging. And I know that there are people out there in the audience who are not as ancient as I am at 62 years old, but I joined the church in 78. I lived through the 1980s as a member of the church. And I'm very aware of the fact that this was a hotly contested issue even then Mm -hmm. and earlier, as it turns out, because in the 1960s, 1961, I think Hugh Nibley in his book, The Myth Makers, talked about this uh, transcript in an effort to debunk it and talk about the really bad providence of it. It's easy to discount. And indeed, he did. But in the meantime, he, as well as Francis W. Kirkham, who wrote a two volume set called A New Witness for Christ in America, which I read back in the mid 1980s, by the way. Both volumes is very, very faith promoting as it was di- designed to be. But it's what these two gentlemen have to say about if it were true that concerns us here because they recognized how damning this evidence would be if it were true and why it was that they were so dead set on disputing it and disproving it and what uh Kirkham says new witness for Christ in America volume 1 pages 385 to 387 a careful study of all facts regarding this alleged confession of Joseph Smith in a court of law that he had used the seer stone to find hidden treasure for purposes of fraud must come to the conclusion that no such record was ever made and therefore is not in existence had he Joseph Smith made this confession in the court of law as early as 1826 or four years before the Book of Mormon was printed, and this confession was in a court record, it would have been impossible for him to have organized the restored church. Because what he's saying is, nobody would be that stupid. To join a church that a guy says is based upon a translation of a record written on gold plates that an angel told him where it was hidden, and then he he finds it with the seer stone. And so he thinks it would be impossible for him to restore the church. Obviously, he was incorrect in that conclusion because as P.T. Barnum said, there really is one born every minute, speaking of suckers. And also later on in the book, pages 86, and forty-seven, Francis Kirkham continues, if a court record could be identified and if it contained a confession by Joseph Smith, which revealed him to be a poor, ignorant, deluded, and superstitious person, enable <laughs> himself to write a book of any consequence, and whose church could not endure because it attracted only similar persons of low mentality, like me for 40 years, if such a court record confession could be identified and proved, then it follows that his believers must deny his claimed divine guidance which led them to follow him. So in other words, if this were true, all of Joseph Smith's followers would have to deny his being a prophet. How could he be a prophet of God, he goes on. How could he be a prophet of God, the leader of the restored church to these tens of thousands at the time? And now these tens of millions. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, Maybe three million. How could he be a prophet of God, the leader of the restored church to these tens of thousands if he had been the superstitious fraud which the pages from a book declared he confessed to be? Speaking of this transcript.
0: Yeah, and and they, you know, Kirkham is um, implicitly acknowledging that when he reads this trial proceeding, he sees a fraud. He sees a man who doesn't find anything of value and for which it seems as though the only things he does find or or does that seem magical are things that could be explained rationally and never have any value at all.
1: Yes. And, and uh, Hugh Nibley follows it up. 1961, the myth makers, which I did read, I got it at a used book dealer. Cost me a pretty penny, but this was a long time ago. It says, if this court record, this is Hugh Nibley talking about this transcript, if this court record is authentic, it is the most damning evidence in existence against Joseph Smith. And on the same page, this is Mythmakers, page 142, on the same page, we read that such a court record would be, quote, the most devastating blow to Smith ever delivered, period, end of quote. And we're taking both of these quotes, by the way, not only from the place where they uh, were originally published, but also with the help of the Tanners, in an article that they wrote yeah. about this issue.
0: I think and it's so. When it says on the same 60. page,
1: we read that's the yeah. Tanners talking on the same page of this book, The Myth Makers, page one forty-two. Hugh Nibley also says that this court record would be quote the most devastating blow to Smith ever delivered.
0: Yeah, Utah Lighthouse Ministry. I think it's their issue number sixty-eight, and that will be in the outline that we share. Tomorrow uh, morning with the published audio, right? And um,
1: as Dan Vogel saying once again, anticipating us that Nibley thought he was safe to say this until Wes Walters, Walters right, came yeah. along. Wesley Walters is going to make a fine that's going to change everything.
0: And we and, got to know just. I was going to go back just here really quick. Remember this trial proceeding that shows up in 1873 right. claims that the church or not church the court cost to Joseph Smith the fine for all the cost involved is 268 pennies.
1: That sounds like $2.68 to
0: me. $2.68, which on the screen now is the Wes Walters find. And uh, it seems like he traveled out to New York. He knew what he was trying to look for. He was looking specifically for this. He went through a bunch of archives and he located what he claimed was the 1826 court docket for this trial. Wherein and you can't really see in the cursive there, but you do see on the right-hand side uh, about the middle, you see a number 2.68. And uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project uh, published this, uh, this image of the document, but this is the actual court docket um, from the court that day. And everybody involved seems to acknowledge at this point that this is authentic, Um, And we'll run into one moment in time where somebody challenged that. But it seems as though in the modern moment of 2022, we all accept that this is an authentic document. It's saying saying, meaning the the people of Bainbridge County or whatever, versus Joseph Smith, the glass looker. He was charged with a misdemeanor uh, March 20th, 1826, to my fees and examination of the above cause $2.68. The $2.68 shows that at least on some level, whoever wrote the proceeding for 1873 had access to at least, whether they transcripted it correctly or not, they had access to the original uh, uh, trial notes for what happened in that case.
1: Yes, if this that uh, Wesley Walters had found were a forgery, which I don't think is a question at all at this point, but I'm just saying Mm -hmm. if it were, it would be a simple matter to take the $2.68 and stick it in there because it's in the transcript that was originally published in 1873. Right. But the fact it was actually found at the Brainbridge courthouse through the um research and digging of Wesley Walters tends to corroborate at least that aspect of the transcript that was first published in 1873 because the amount the $2.68 are identical.
0: Yeah. And we have other corroborating documents as well. So we end up with one of the other judges' uh, receipts. Notice it's the same sort of paper with the same sort of damage to it. This was located even later on. um, And I believe this one in particular was located by a believing historical scholar. I forget the name, but I believe it was a a faithful historical scholar who located it. Um, Again, notifying justices serving warrant on Joseph Smith and travels. We already know there's no ifs, ands, or buts at this point. That case occurred, and if there was any doubt about Wesley Walters' document that he found, this secondary document uh, corroborates that. Um, and then you also, oh, I guess we'll skip that for a moment. And but by the way, also, it corroborates
1: it in the amount of money that's charged for certain services at the time and in that court, correct?
0: Yeah. There was a third document, too, which was another, um, um, that's okay, I'm going to keep it there, maybe. Um there was th- another document that was another judge's fees for the day as well, but I don't think that one had put specifically Joseph Smith in it. But we have enough at this point with this document, the Wesley Walters fine of, of that, and the 1873 telling of the court proceedings that we're pretty confident at this point that the person who wrote the transcript down got the majority of what they're saying correct. Although there is some question about how this case concludes. Um, Oliver Cowdrey, for instance, notes that Joseph Smith was acquitted in this particular trial. Um, and I know the church likes to play up on that as well as apologist. The document itself says that he was charged and convicted essentially, and that was his fine, but that doesn't really seem to hold water either. And you'll notice on this screen right now, on the right-hand side, is a letter by W.W. W. Phelps, between W.W. W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdrey where Crowdery relates to Phelps on the private character of our brother, I need add nothing further at present, previous to this obtaining the records of the Nephites, only that while in this country, some very officious persons complained of him as a disorderly person and brought him before the authorities of the county, but there being no cause of action, he was honorably acquitted. I just want to note, Oliver Cowdrey hadn't even met Joseph Smith yet in 1826. Right,
1: 1830.
0: Yep, 1829, 1830, about three, three and a half years later. I'm sorry. And Cowdery was, Joseph is arrested and charged uh, and goes to court in two other instances in 1830. And Cowdery is at the very first trial in 1830 of Joseph Smith. And in that trial, he was acquitted. And so I simply want to note that there's a high likelihood, I think, that Oliver Cowdery is misremembering which trial they're asking about. And he wouldn't know anything about the 1826 trial unless Joseph Smith told him and whatever Joseph Smith did that the court allowed him to get away without going to the full extent of what a conviction would mean. Joseph could have easily told his friends and close associates that he was acquitted when maybe that's not exactly what happened. Yeah. It would seem as though Oliver Cowdery is misremembering the wrong trial. But, um, just based on the data that we have that he was at the 1830 and didn't even know Smith yet in 1826.
1: Right. If he's going off 1826 trial, then he's taking Joseph Smith's word for what happened. I would expect,
0: mm-hmm. uh, it
1: reminds me of big Julian guys and dolls when he says, I always was a good guy, which I can prove by my record, 33 <laughs> arrests and no convictions.
0: <laughs> and just about Joseph probably just about has 33 arrests and uh, maybe just one conviction.
1: Maybe. But you see, look, as a lawyer, and as I was talking with Colby Reddish about this earlier today, and we both have the same idea as a lawyer, I don't care whether he was found guilty or not at this 1826 trial. That's the least important thing to me. But that's where the apologists go, because they can argue about that. It doesn't make any difference to me, and it really doesn't make any difference to the issue whether he's found guilty. I don't care what a judge says at the end of a trial if it was a trial. The important thing is that this is what Joseph Smith was doing. And this is what it is that Hugh Nibley said, if this is true, it's the most damning evidence against Joseph Smith. So now we've entered this new age where it's something that sort of gained currency. More, More and more people know about it. It's become more accepted. And now it's tried to be palmed off, like in the essay saying, lots of people did this, right? Like it's no big deal, the treasure digging. The thing is uh, is that their argument isn't with me. Their argument is with Hugh Nibley, because Hugh Nibley said it would be the biggest deal and the worst deal ever against Joseph Smith if indeed this 1826 trial happened, and if that's what Joseph Smith was up to.
0: And you have people in the church historical department, namely Mark Ashurst McGee, who's written quite a bit about Moroni as a guardian spirit. Um, That's really been one of his specialties that he's gone off in and wrote a bunch about. But whereas Nibley and this uh, Kirkham are both saying like, look, if this 1873 trial recounting is true, it seems apparent that Joseph Smith is scamming people. He's not able to find anything of value. And it looks like he's just this, this you know dishonest person who's a charlatan, and it would be deeply damning evidence against the church. Like you point out, now the narrative has changed. Guys like Mark Ashurst McGee go, well, yeah, back then Joseph was a treasure digging scryer, who looked for fictional Spanish silver mines and William Kidd or Captain Kidd's treasures and coins and salt mines and things of value that he never found, but for which he uh, pretended that uh, guardian spirits were watching over treasures that we now know are fictional. He used his stone, he used his hat, he did all the things, but that was just a training ground. For Joseph Smith to to then be a real prophet using the stone in a real way with a a hat to deal with a real guardian spirit named Moroni to find a real treasure such as a sacred record written upon gold plates. And hence, there's nothing to see here. And that real
1: record that he found, he finally found the gold, except the angel took it with him. It's the same story.
0: Yeah. And, and it leads us back. It can't be real gold because then it's too heavy. So now it's got to be some other material, even though Moroni himself says they were plates of gold. And now we're off another tangent that uh, provides another problem in the church that they can't quite resolve.
1: Can you say Tumbaga?
0: I knew Tumbaga. you could. <laughs> uh, much lighter. Similar to gold. Has some gold in it. Much lighter.
1: But by the way, the chronology, which I think is clear so far. But first off, we've got 1873. This transcript comes out for the first time. Then you have, I think it's the 1950s when Kirkham writes his book. It might be a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. He's saying how damning it would be if this were true. It's not true. It's not true. It would be damning if it were. Who would follow Joseph Smith if they knew that this was his background? And then you've got Hugh Nibley in 1961 saying this would be the most damning th- evidence ever found against Joseph Smith if it were true. And then in 1971 it is that Wesley Walters makes this discovery. And it is, this is before I joined the church. But it is such a massive, explosive discovery that he makes that at least one Mormon author took matters into his own hands in order to try and defuse the power of this discovery.
0: Yeah, we can skip to that part and we'll come back to something here. So Oh, I'm uh, sorry, did I cut you off? You're you're okay. There's another part I want to go to, but we can go right after this. It's no big deal. So um what you see on the screen right now, the very big part of the top left with the two side-by-side images, a Ronald Verne Jackson uh, takes the printing of Wesley Walter's find and changes Joseph Smith's name to Josiah Stoll so that they can distance Joseph Smith from the trial. And, um, challenges basically says that Wesley Walters had forged the document into Joseph Smith's name that actually originally said Josiah stole. Thank goodness for Sandra and Gerald Tanner because they come in and are able to prove that it's actually Ronald Vern Jackson who creates the forgery because the forgery carries over the same marks from the print plate that they used to create copies of the original document. And so the original document doesn't have these little marks on it, but the the copies of it that were printed do because of the print machine that was used, and Ronald Vern Jackson's forgery of it carry on those same markings as well. And so you can see how the tanners note that, for instance, above the A in as and as in the E and he, which is this is a separate document, it carries the exact same marks that um, that. Uh, Ronald Vern Jackson's and Wesley Walters' copies have, but for which the original document of the 1826 court docket does not contain. And so it completely uh, exposes Ronald Vern Jackson as having created a fraudulent version, a forged version of Wesley Walters' fine that blames Josiah Stoll in the trial rather than Joseph Smith. But we know that that was just a believing Mormon doing the thing that Mark Hoffman did. Yeah, yeah.
1: By the way, just in case this isn't clear enough for people who are going to listen to this on audio, it's amazing because what it is, is this one little part of the document that Wesley Walters found that says same versus Joseph Smith, the glass looker, March 20th, 1826, right? And he takes that Joseph Smith, whites out everything except the J and the S in the name, and then writes in Josiah Stowell. The reason we know he did it is because he actually used let me back up a second. Wesley Walters finds this, gets a copy to the Tanners. They're going to mass produce this on their mimeograph or whatever it is they're using back in 1971 yeah. to churn these out. And their mimeograph has a defect in it. In fact, two defects that replicate themselves on every freaking page of everything they turn out. And it's these two little marks. So then what this uh, I don't know, rocket scientist Ronald Jackson does is he takes one of the copies that the tanners have mass produced whites it out copies it again and says hey guess who's a forger well it's wesley walters unfortunately he left on the thing that he whited out and copied he left those two telltale marks that show that it was from the tanners copy originally it's conclusive ronald verne jackson committed a forgery in order to defend joseph smith and defame Wesley Walters.
0: Now, the important question here is, why would Ronald Vern Jackson see the need to do this?
1: Because it is so devastating to Joseph Smith's reputation.
0: Yes, nailed it. So now if we go back here a little bit, oops. Um, yeah,
1: I'll shut up now, go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. So in the 1830 trial, here's how Josiah Stoll knows that Joseph Smith is a is a real steer. Do you want to play the part of Josiah Stoll? Ah, uh, yes, because I have very short answers. Okay, here we go. Did Smith ever tell you there was money hidden in a certain glass which he mentioned? Yes. Did he tell you you could find it by digging? Yes. Did you dig? Yes. Did you find any money? No. Did he not lie to you then and deceive you? No. The money
1: was there, but we did not get quite to it. How do you know it was there? Smith said it was.
0: (laughs) Isn't this the perfect example of circular reasoning?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He didn't find it, but he knows that Smith has the power to find it because the treasure was there. And even though you never found it, you know it's there because Smith said it was there. And that Smith is, of course, Joseph Smith, Jr.,
0: Does it remind you of circular reasoning by anybody else? And so I start out with an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Mormon and anything else, excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, (coughs) I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true. And on these points, we'll just have to agree to disagree. But we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. Give Brother Joseph a break. Okay, so um, you never yeah, find I can understand treasure. why Kerry
1: Mulsteen doesn't want to defend his paradigm.
0: Doesn't Kerry Mulstein come off as the very kind of guy that would— have gone through all of these experiences and been certain that Joe Smith was a prophet in spite of nothing ever of value being found.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think his middle name is Josiah. It's Carrie Josiah Muelstein.
0: (laughs) How do you know it was there? Because Smith said it was. (laughs) Then there are three other quotes I want to hit on really quick. The first 1830 trial, it is reported and probably true that he commenced his juggling by stealing and hiding property belonging to his neighbor's And when inquiry was made, he would look in a stone, his gift and power and tell where it was. So here's a suggestion that he was stealing and then hiding the things he stole and then helping people to find the thing that he stole and hid by using his proposed magic powers. Then the second 1830 trial that he had been acquainted with Smith, the prisoner for several years, that prisoner pretended to look in a certain glass or stone and said he could tell where stolen goods were, and could discover mines—excuse me—of gold, silver underground. Though none was ever found, made some pretense at telling fortunes. But he, witness, never knew a prisoner's finding anything by his pretended art. And, this and then, is then this also one the
1: second trial in 1830.
0: Yeah, the first one was from the first trial in 1830. This one's from the second trial in 1830. And then this last one is from the second trial in 1830. Harris Stoll says, I hid a bag of grain in his barn. He, he Sorry, Harris hit a bag of grain in his barn, told Smith that he had lost a bag of grain and wished prisoner to find it. Prisoner looked in his glass in vain for he could not find it. Prisoner, after using all his art for a number of days, offered to give the witness or Harris Stoll's brother 50 cents. So his brother told his his brother, Harris Stoll. So the brother of Harris Stoll went back to Harris and said, Hey, Joseph Smith just tried to pay me 50 cents to tell you where the grain bag was, tell him where the grain bag was that you hid. Um, and it says to find where the grain was and tell him prisoner unbeknownst to witness. So that Smith, the prisoner might have the credit of finding the grain. It seems like Joseph was willing in this instance, if we were to believe this account, that he was going to bribe a family member of the item that he's looking for, so that that person will tell him the needed information, so he can pretend to be a seer and tell the original person where their st- where their item is at. Doesn't yeah. that seem? Doesn't that hurt the reputation of Joseph Smith?
1: I think so. I think so. And when he's uh, having trouble finding this hidden grain uh, or bag of grain. That uh, the prisoner, once again, Joseph Smith, the prisoner, uh, looked in his glass in vain for he could not find it. It reminds me of Yuri Geller on The Tonight Show.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Where he had a lot of
1: trouble uh, doing his magic act, which he pretended was real because Johnny Carson was was advised by um, the amazing Randy. How he did it and to take precautions to keep him from doing it. And all of a sudden on live, I don't think it's live TV, but national TV. Murray Geller's up there and he can't do it. He's using all of his powers and then he has to ascribe it to, well, I guess there's not enough positive energy here tonight or there's disbelievers present and it's hard for me to work. You know, there's a host, an an unlimited number of excuses that you can come up with for why something isn't working if you're into this kind of thing. The only only criticism I have of Harris Stowell is that I think he should have first taken the 50 cents and then told his brother. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right right get the money first and then tell the brother that joseph was trying to bribe him yeah all right we did that one already that's actually the last slide um any thoughts here from you as we've kind of gone over this story quickly we've got a few minutes left i'm gonna turn on the call studio as you're as you're sharing any comments that you might have
1: no that's it for me and i was just wondering i'm sorry i wasn't here at the beginning some of the strange things that have happened here and why i was late it's because my camera suddenly disappeared from where it normally is and so did my My earphones, and I have a second camera, which I had to dig out and find, which I'm using now, and another set of earbuds, but I have no idea where they went to. There are gremlins loose in the building at this Halloween season, I think.
0: You're missing um, technology items out of your office.
1: Yes, that's one way of putting it.
0: Okay, and so you never took them home. You never removed them from the office.
1: I don't think so, but this has me questioning Everything now
0: I'm turning my sense of reality upside down and inside out. I'm going to put a rock in my cup and I'm going to see if I can find your items that are suddenly missing from you. No, I'm not gonna be able to do that. I didn't steal them and place them anywhere. So I won't be able to tell you where they're at that I've removed them to.
1: By the way, stealing stuff and then pretending to find it is a risky business because the obvious solution to the trick is you're the guy who stole it. By the way, I was wondering, does Maven have anything she wants to add here?
0: Yeah, Maven, Maven
1: Maven, she, Maven, Maven. It's like Bloody Mary. You say it three times and she appears in the mirror. Hello, yeah, Maven?
0: I, 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 she, well, yeah, I don't know if we want that out there quite yet, Maven, but... It, I, no, I want Maven. She, I don't know Are if she, there, was Maven? Ma- Does she not want? Oh, she doesn't
1: want to because she has surgery. Yeah. That's right. yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so, sorry.
0: No, no, no big deal. Um,
1: She's such a me, trooper. She's here, like, right after having surgery.
0: Yeah. She, Thank you, Maven. You're awesome. Say, okay. Thank you. Um. Any other on the 1826 uh, trial at all? And folks, if you want to call in 662-667-Mormon, uh, yeah, 662-667-6667 uh, or 662-Mormon. Sorry about that. Uh, any other thoughts from you on the 1826 trial? And then we can maybe take a few phone calls, and uh, uh, then after that we'll reveal the, the winning shirt, which... Uh, You got a little clip already revealed. I don't know. It's all right. (laughs) It's excuse me. Sorry about that.
1: Who was that calling? I hope it was important. Okay. Apparently it's Joe Biden on the line.
0: It's not not Joe Biden, but I, it's the call in studio, the phone call took place. So folks, if you guys oh, want to okay, call, we've got okay. one caller already. It, Great. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, every time Joseph does find something, it can be easily explained as him planting something or doing a little magic trick that really isn't magic at all. And then every time there's an actual treasure being told where it is, um, he seems to strike out and not really uh, ever find anything of value. Um, And I think when you see that enough times, and we're talking at this point now, as we went over all of these, about a half dozen of him claiming there were valuable things, those never get found. And then three or four things that do get sort of like, there seems like there's some magic here. And they always seem connected to some process that could be easily explained with secular means.
1: Yeah. And even though Isaac Hale seems to have been impressed enough with his abilities in 1825 to sign up to this treasure dig expedition, I think it was a couple of years later when Joseph Smith wants his hand, or excuse me, wants Emma's hand mm-hmm. from him. He's not that impressed with Joseph Smith anymore, if he ever was. But the fact that he has Joseph Smith Jr. and senior involved indicates a certain amount of trust, at that point at least, in
0: 1825. Yeah, and, and Smith seems to be doing this treasure digging stuff Continually over the course of years. I mean, he's at Stoll's house for five months. Uh, it talks about their digging for three years before that. You've got Dan Vogel's article with seventeen different treasure digs, most of which Joseph Smith or members of the Smith family participated in, um, and it's and it's Smith on numerous occasions. And it seems as though at the end of the day, if we really are going to be data-based and rational thinkers. It comes down to the fact that Joseph has for years and years and years pretended to locate items of value, which he never finds. And the only thing he ever does find, uh, is seems to be using parlor tricks. You're muted.
1: I lost track of where the screen was. I apologize. I was looking something else up while you were talking. Well, never let it be forgotten that these people who say that Joseph Smith left it all behind him is apparently the same Joseph Smith who in 1836 is at the direction of the Lord headed off to Salem, Massachusetts, in order to find buried treasure. And once again,
0: he fails. In a basement of someone's home, right?
1: Yes, we have this in our Doctrine and Covenants for crying out loud.
0: Yeah. Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph goes treasure digging once again, and, as always, comes up empty. The only time he succeeded was with Moroni's plates. And uh, and then, conveniently, the angel takes those back. Right. And that's section
1: 111. For those of you who want to look it up, section 111 in the Doctrine and Covenants, it is part of the scripture that Joseph Smith really did not leave his treasure hunting days behind him in the 1820s.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um. Anything else you want to take a few phone calls and then we can show the shirt design.
1: Absolutely.
0: Perfect. All right. So first caller, I don't have any names for some reason, but we'll, uh, we'll grab this one. Caller you're on the air. What's the name? Andrew. Andrew, you're on Mormonism live. Go ahead, my friend. What's on your mind tonight? Um, Well, first of all, hello, Team Mormonism Live. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. I have a suggestion and a question regarding this forging apologist, if that's all right. Please. The first is a suggestion. Maybe we could take, or not me, we, you, could take um, this short segment about this lying apologist, and it could be a series of shorts about lying for the
1: Lord and this apologist would be the first
0: one. Yeah, it's an easy example, isn't it? That here you have a believing member who uh, alters the historical record because they can't deal with what comes from that, what the consequences of that are. Right, and then the second is a question is, do we know how the other apologists responded to this? Uh, I couldn't find anything in regards to how the larger Mormon community, namely, apologist, uh, handled when Ronald Vern Jackson came out with this forgery. I'm assuming they would have immediately jumped on that bandwagon um, prior to the discovery that it was a forged document, uh, because it's the really that's the it's the hope and the prayer that they're really hoping for to to kind of persuade people that this isn't truth. But I don't have absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much for effort to bring truth to this problem. Yeah, no problem. You're welcome, my friend. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Do you, do you know anything about when that came out and any responses from inside the church or uh, nothing with Ronald Vern Jackson's forgery? No,
1: I don't. Uh, I do know that he really trumpeted this. He didn't just mm-hmm. sort of change it and then not say a lot. The, the point of Changing it was to influence the public discussion, to change the record, to make it more favorable to Joseph Smith, which he obviously did. And um, I expect that everybody was very, ha- once again, I, this is speculation on my part. I expect that all the apologists were very happy about it until and unless they found out that it was a forgery, which it clearly is. And then after they found out it was a forgery, they probably didn't come out and say, hey, it was a forgery. They probably just stopped talking about it all together, which is kind of yeah. the state of the thing, uh, state of things today.
0: Yeah, totally. All right. Second caller. Uh you're on the air. What's the name? Hello? Oh, this is Mo. Mo, how are you? Oh good, what, good. Sorry. I uh, right, yeah, what's, what's on your my mind? My question was uh was there anyone in the company of these digs did any of these people join the church after uh, Joseph Smith started the church.
1: Yes, Josiah Stoll did, I think, church. Mo. No,
0: yeah, we were debating this earlier in the week, Mo. I was actually not. I was. I was thinking in my head that Josiah Stoll never joined the church, and RFM thought he had. And when we looked it up. Josiah Stoll had, in fact, joined the church. Um, I'm, I don't know if it was 1830 or 1831, but it was early on, as soon as the church was organized, not too long after. Um, but then he yes. left
1: in 1833, apparently, didn't he, Bill? You found that? Um, It was just a few years later, he and he goes off somewhere behind. else where there aren't yep. any Mormons, and, he didn't and then gather he sort of disappears saints. from history.
0: Right. He doesn't gather with the saints. He moves some distance away, uh, New Hampshire or something like that, and no longer is with the saints. And we don't really know the story of why he separated from them. But for being as adamant that Joseph missed the prophet, you would think he would want to stay with the, the believing collective. Of the saints, and then I don't know. Obviously, uh, the Knight family is connected to Josiah stole, but not necessarily connected to these treasure digs. And we would note that the Knight family joined the church and were uh, often made up very important parts of early church history. So that there. Anything else, Mo? No, that just that popped into my head, and I um, just wondered, yeah, if there, if there was any uh, info about that. But yeah. it, that's fascinating. And Isaiah yeah. Hales obviously didn't. So yeah, no problem. Have a great day, my friend.
1: Hey, Mo. I would say that either something catastrophic happened in Josiah Stoll's life that necessitated his move to go somewhere else, or he became less enamored with Joseph Smith's seership. Yeah.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to end the calls there. And I I totally agree with you. Like, again, whatever's going on, Josiah stole, it seems like there's some complication there because he does completely distance himself from the saints. Um, If nothing else, uh, any other thoughts here on this particular topic? Otherwise we can certainly show it. Appreciate both phone calls, by the way, really, really appreciate the comments. Anything else going on in your mind or anything else you're thinking about uh, in terms of this or anything else we need to talk about in today's episode?
1: Yeah, I just want to say, I think you've done a great job of finding a lot of resources on this. This is all Bill's research, finding all these things. It's an important story in LDS history, and it's one that is too frequently not talked about in certain circles or brushed under the rug with a very quick sentence, as in the Gospel Topics essay. It's very important that we know about this and what it is we can learn about it, and also the fact that two prominent LDS faithful scholars said that if it were true, this would be the most damning evidence against Joseph Smith. And, and it turns I out I agree with them. They were right yeah. then. They're right now. It is the most damning evidence against Joseph Smith.
0: And he looks like a scam artist when you read these proceedings. I mean, he it comes across. Again, we can debate, I guess, whether the transcription is accurate, though it seems as though by the 268 price that it is. Um, it seems as though when you read these witness accounts, it really does make it look like these some of these folks were really gullible. They believed in Joseph Smith simply on his word and on some parlor tricks and never, ever saw anything of substance be found.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, the hardest people, the easiest people to fool are the ones who want to believe. It's like Ghostbusters, right? We're ready to believe you. Yeah, And so it's very easy to fool the credulous and I've done it many times myself and it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. And we believed these, um, the, the, the way in which apologists attack this issue and try to simply say, like we write it off. Joseph did find some things. Like there's evidence that in some of these instances, Joseph located uh, items for people um, so it seems like mixed results. This could be a preparation for his later ascent into prophethood. Um, but as a rational, critical thinking human being who isn't, um, persuaded by my loyalty to the belief system or the church, when I read this trial, I just see, I see a bunch of people being duped and, and by a person who's duping them as a scam artist.
1: Yeah. And what, what better compliment can you get? as a magician th- that then to have the person that you have fooled standing up for you and saying, there's no way you could have done it without magic. I've had that experience. Yeah. It's the highest compliment a magician can receive.
0: Yeah. There's no other way to explain it. It had to be magic.
1: Obviously. If I can't Obviously. figure out how you did it, it's gotta be magic.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's show the shirt. So this folks, we really appreciate everybody's participation um, I was going to pull up here really quick, Google Forms, um, but it was it was a win significantly, um, but it was sort of close as well. Let me pull up, and I can actually put this on the screen so that folks can see it. Uh, StreamYard share. And so we got 175 responses, and um, 42.9% were for that one right there and you and i and maven all liked this one a lot as well
1: yeah i think we liked all of them especially the mm-hmm. ones that made it into the final stuff as well as yep. some that, e- that didn't even make it there i apologize for my stuttering i'm very nervous tonight so this is a great one and i've got to say that there's a close vote even mm-hmm. among those three this one wins it by a nose and it's yeah. fantastic i really like it 42.9
0: 39, uh, 30, sorry, 36% and 21.1. And so all of those got a, a nice fair share, but this is, this is our winner. And so, uh, I put up on the screen, let me grab it again. Uh, Exmo apparel. This is Exmo backslash collection backslash Mormon discussions. And folks, you can go to that site to see the merchandise for the umbrella there's Almost Awaken stuff there, Radio Free Mormon, Mormonism Live, Mormon Discussion, all the things that uh, all the the various brands that we do, uh, a large chunk of them are represented there. And uh, folks, uh, you will see this logo on a t-shirt show up over the course of the next week. Um, the owner of uh, the site that we're working with uh, said that it should be up there shortly and so it may be up there now, but um, certainly before next week's show, we'll have the chance and we'll mention it again next week. Uh, it was a lot of fun to have folks participate. We got so many good ideas. We narrowed it down to three. We gave uh, folks a chance to vote and it was a fun little process. And I'm really excited. I think I think this logo I will use um, predominantly in the show in places. And uh, so I'm kind of excited to get to work to to use it. It really is beautifully done. And we're really appreciative of everybody who contributed.
1: Absolutely. Hey, Bill, do you have a promo thumbnail for next week's 100th episode of Mormonism Live that uses this?
0: Oh, I do. Give me a second. I'll find it. I know he Um, will.
1: He will find it and then we'll put it up as a thumbnail. I think that's your plan, right? Because it's amazing artwork provided to us by a gentleman who would rather not be named, but we still appreciate and love him just the same.
0: Look at that. Mormonism Live 100th episode, and, I'm, and I've got the actual 100th fix, so when the actual image comes out, it'll be a little bit improved. But Mormonism Live, 100th episode, super show. And uh, what we're thinking about doing is we're going to have uh, you know myself, RFM, Maven, share some of our favorite episodes that have happened in the first 100 and also take uh, calls throughout the show and let each of you share with us what your favorite is. And so I would suggest go to mormonismlive.org, there's a button there that should say archive. You can go look at our first 99 episodes and, uh, those are your favorite and, uh, come to next week's show willing to put your favorite down in the comments, or even if, uh, you want, give us a call and we'll bring you on the show and let you talk about your favorite episode that we've done. Uh, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Oh, and and my wife, I I started off, you know, you and I usually have this banter at the beginning,
1: which I was absent uh, for tonight,
0: which you were absent for, but, I was going to tell you that my wife and I, we went for the, because we like bowling. We bowl quite a bit. And we've always just used the the stock bowling alley, bar, uh, bowling, alley uh, bowling balls. And uh, just last week, we got our own bowling balls, our own shoes. And we're really doing the nerd thing now where we're bowling a couple times a week and really having a ton of fun. I'm not any good at it. I bowl like a 120 sometimes and sometimes less. But uh, I got my own ball and I'm excited. I don't know if you're a big bowler or not.
1: No, but this shows no. a degree of commitment that is commendable. It's like getting your own temple clothes.
0: Yeah, yeah, except it's not quite as much misery. I have a good time while I'm bowling. Uh, I've never really had a, a great time sitting in You know, in the that temple. gives me
1: a, an idea. I think that uh, temple attendance would improve if we installed a bowling alley.
0: And, and
1: played some better movies, you know what I mean? <laughs> I know. Give people a choice. The blonde Eve, the Brunette Eve, <laughs> at a minimum.
0: Yeah at a minimum and i'm thinking a whole nother show altogether like if they put avengers up on the screen i think people would be a little more excited for the hour and a half they're sitting in there
1: oh my gosh yes please <laughs> somebody do something
0: all right well next week's uh episode on uh on on all of the past 99 and what a fun journey it's been and hopefully a few hundred more uh in front of it uh at the least so i'm excited to see what you and i and uh, maven produce over the next uh over the course of the next year
1: so am I. We've already got some episodes scheduled into November, including Jim Bennett coming
0: on the show. Ooh, Jim November Bennett.
1: 16th, he slotted. I hope he's watching.
0: Love it. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, anything else, RFM?
1: No, that's it. I had a great time tonight. Glad I could finally get connected. Bill, you're marvelous. You did a fantastic job tonight on tonight's show.
0: And I hope you and Maven both feel better over the course of the next week. And I can't wait to see you guys next week for our 100th show. Yes. Thank you um